Michael, what is your idea of heaven on earth? Hmm, an evening at the theater? Absolutely correct. On that front, we have some very good news. Our friends at Joe's Pub have something special in store this holiday season. And it stars one of our very favorite talents, Sandra Bernhardt. Burn It Down is an all-new version of her annual holiday show, which she'd done for 10 straight years until the pandemic forced her to cancel last year. If you find yourself struggling to use your social skills again, an evening out at Joe's Pub is the perfect place to start. There's glamour, singing, indulgence, and plenty of strong drinks, along with an opening act from the hilarious comedy group Unitard. Make sure to reserve your tickets now because Burn It Down is a limited edition engagement that is running only from December 26th through December 31st. Check out joespub.org for more information. Happy Saturday. It is November 13th, 2021, and you are listening to Morning Meeting. I'm Ashley Baker, the style editor of Airmail. And I'm Michael Haney, a deputy editor here at Airmail. Welcome to Saturday. And welcome to Ashley's wonderful new haircut that I saw. (laughs) Yeah, we just saw each other in the office. Sighting, sighting, sighting. Michael Haney graced us in Greenwich Village. I haven't seen you in the office in how long has it been? We've been, we had a couple of passings in the night or passings in the day, I should say. This is the first one I'm like, whoa, beautiful new haircut. So here's the happy haircut. I have to say it was so great to see you in the office because I'm having an office moment right now. What does that mean? Well, I've been rewatching the office TV series, the American one. Ah, yes. Which gives one a lot of pleasure these days, right? Michael, you can't blame me for having an office moment. This is all an occupational hazard for us. There's an incredible new oral history of The Office that is coming out right about now. And we have an excerpt of it in this week's issue of Airmail. And it is an absolute delight for Office fans and neophytes alike. Yeah, it's called Welcome to Dunder Mifflin, the ultimate oral history of The Office by... Uh, Brian Baumgartner and Ben Silverman, who worked on the show. And yeah, we're having an oral history moment, seems the last few weeks with books we're excited about. I love this excerpt that we've got because it points out a number of amazing things. Not only has everyone talking from Steve Carell to um, Ricky Gervais, but it talks about how basically Fox, HBO, and uh, others passed on it. Les Moon was at CBS before NBC sort of came along and picked it up. And even then, the first season, it kind of got destroyed by the critics, but it's become this thing we all love, right? Yeah, there's so much great detail in this for in terms of dinner party conversation. So The Office in the U.S. was co-created by Ben Silverman and Greg Daniels, and Greg got the job because when he was discussing the project with Ricky Gervais, he was the only person who talked about it as fundamentally a love story, which I thought was very charming. Uh, you know, people tuned in for the face-off between David Brent and Michael Scott, but in reality, it it was really a story about love and endurance and uh, the triumph of beauty over the mundane. Beautifully put. Why, thank you. Okay, more fun facts. Rain Wilson auditioned for two characters, both Michael and White. His Michael was apparently terrible. One of the guys on the shortlist for the Michael Scott character was Bob Odenkirk, funny. And then uh, someone at Universal called Ben Silverman and said, what about Steve Carell for the lead? And, you know, Steve Carell recalls when he was Right before his audition, he was talking to Paul Rudd. He'd never actually seen the original Office. And Paul Rudd was like, oh, don't do it. Bad, bad move. I mean, it's never going to be good. Well, it turns out he was wrong. Um, Kate Flannery, had, who played the character of Meredith Palmer, the only instruction they gave her was she was lactose intolerant, divorced, and had a hysterectomy. Go. So uh, it's just it's just a really fun romp, not only through this show, but through the, the many characters and the incredible actors who made it really come to life. Yeah. 
Um, would make a great Christmas present. I'm already looking ahead. Michael, when you were reading, does our office remind you of The Office? Every office reminds one of The Office. That's that's why this show resonates so much with people, because it just is all about, you know, you, this is, the this is the, well, up until COVID, this is the family we spent the most time with. But yeah, there's just all those moments where we all are like the camera, just sort of looking around the room and like either making eye contact with someone like, did I just hear that? Or, you know, you're thinking to yourself, this is too strange. So, yes. Don't you think every office is like the office? Yeah, I do. For sure. And I was thinking about it in terms of our office. And it's so strange because for the past 18 months, we have not really been living in that alternative reality of our work life. It's just been our home life. And I know I, for one, have gotten totally crazier as a result. So now when I go back into the office, I'm pretty sure that the people there, and it's it's like a skeleton team. It's just very few of us right now at Airmail HQ. But I think it, you know, they all think I'm totally insane. Like I think Jacob thinks I have no social skills. He's not wrong. <laughs> Sorry, Jacob. Are you eating with your hands or something? Or <laughs> pretty what, much. What's going, what's going on? I'm like talking to myself, like singing, making a lot, like just being like a hundred percent crazy because when you have to go into an office every day, you have to temper the crazy. But during the pandemic, a lot of us just let our freak flags fly. Well, you, yes, I, I think you have to be housebroken again, maybe. You don't need to sort of uh, learn learn the rules, you know. It's true. For those of you, one of the rules in the Carter office, in the airmail is no tarts. There's a sign on the wall in the kitchen, no tarts, T-A-R-T-S. Keep it tidy, no tarts. There you go. We've got one hell of an issue of airmail this week, ladies and gentlemen. We say that every week. It's especially true this week. Okay, so, Michael, we've been having a pretty good week, but you know who's been having a bad week? Bojo. Sorry, Bojo. That would be Boris Johnson, the Prime Minister of the UK. Stu Heritage takes us through his litany of offenses this week. Uh, it's been a run of bad luck for this guy, and this week was especially bad. Yeah, it's uh, there's a swirl of scandal sort of around Johnson. He's the only person who have, might have lower ratings right now in terms of popularity is, than Biden is, is Boris Johnson. Uh, he's somehow you know, managed across the years to deflect many of his potential scandals that would definitely bury anybody else. But this week he's kind of just, they've been piling up and, and the opposition, it seems, can smell blood in the water. He started with, you know, for instance, he, he left the COP26 climate discussions to go to a dinner at the Garrett Club in London, which he traveled to by private jet. And as Stu says, that's like blowing cigar smoke at a homeless person. Other things he's, he's sort of piled on this week is he um, he went on vacation at a villa in Marbella. That should have cost him $33,000, but he got it for free because it went to someone he happened to appoint to the House of Lords a couple of years ago. I'm going to give him a pass on that one. Like he stayed at a friend's house. Okay. Like, yeah, it rents for 30. Like, would you charge your friend to stay at your house, Michael? <sighs> no, but I think it's it's the perception of how things should be, right? He screwed up a lot this week, but like I'm gonna give him the I'm gonna give him a pass on this one. Stu, it's a buddy. Come on, you'd let your friend stay at your house. Okay, continue. Would you give him a pass on you know they they then there's been the sort of scandal around them uh, he and his uh, new wife refurbishing their flat and uh, they, they you know, Stu decides that they wanted to uh, the apartment above eleven Downing Street transform it into a kind of Fisher-Price Trump Tower, complete with $1,100 a roll gold wallpaper. And it's thought Are that- Are you that kidding we, me? Wait, sorry. How much? 11, I thought that was a typo. $1,100 per roll? Can't be a typo because they, they say the cost of the refurbishment ran to $270,000. Okay. If, if it was like a toilet paper holder, I could imagine why it's $1,100, but it's per roll. I would just never go to the bathroom if my toilet paper were that expensive. No, it's wallpaper. It's not toilet paper. 
Oh my God. So I'm so sorry. This story, <laughs> it's a, it was like a, there was a comparison to Trump Tower and it just made me think gold toilet. Like you can't say the word Trump without me thinking gold toilet. I apologize. Moving on. Moving on. It's not a Marito Catalan <laughs> uh, gold toilet. It's $1,100 a roll gold wallpaper. Still quite outrageous. Yeah. This is one of those things where it's like, okay, your friend might let you stay in their vacation home for free, but like this was funded basically by a party donor. Like you wouldn't really have your, like talk that is a quid pro quo just waiting to happen. Like you don't pay for someone else to refurbish their apartment, right? Like that's asking a lot, even of a friend. It might be uh, living a luxurious life, right? Yes, indeed. Speaking of luxury, can you take us on the luxury style beat, as you uh, are, are so good at, to a story we have this week by Elena Claverino about uh, you might file it under fashion plates, as it were? Oh, you always have a better headline than I do. I called it a taste of the good life. I'm going to go back and rewrite that head. <laughs> yeah, Elena writes for us. So it turns out that a lot of fashion brands are getting into the food business. And it's an interesting development because, as Elena writes, 20 years ago, fashion and food never went together. So many calories. They always tried to separate themselves from like the Applebee's of the universes. But now a lot of fashion brands are getting into this territory because when you think about it, it's a lot easier to buy a croissant that has some vague Prada branding, right, than it does to spend $2,000 on a bag. So she talks about this sort of going back to Giorgio Armani, who was the first to kind of get in on this trend a long time ago with the Emporio Armani Cafe and Armani Restaurantes in Paris and takes us sort of through the history of what's happening now. And it's really fascinating. I think, you know, well, let's get to some examples first. So Back in 2015, Prada got into a massive dispute with LVMH about who was going to be able to acquire Cova, which was a tiny little Milanese patisserie on Monte Napoleone. It was good, but I'm not sure it was worth like $37.6 million, which is what LVMH ended up paying for it. Uh, Prada was not going to let this one go. They went on to acquire Marchese and have had a huge amount of success uh, rolling out this patisserie all over the world. You know, Elena writes, buying a biscuit tin for $46 marked with the Marchese logo is still seems like it's buying some Prada. So it's just a fascinating sort of thing that's happening right now. You know, in June, Ferrari has launched a big fashion brand called Ferrari Style, and they did it alongside the debut of a restaurant that was created exclusively for Ferrari by the superstar chef Massimo Batura, who has uh, Osteria Francescana in Modena, Italy. So uh, we also have the Gucci brand that's rolling out their Osterias. In fact, the one in Los Angeles just got a Michelin star. It's absolutely delicious. And then, of course, Michael, that brings us to your favorite restaurant, the Polo Bar. Yeah, Ralph Lauren's restaurant here in New York City. You know, And then you've even got Raymond Ruffini behind Montclair. He's opening up a... He um, just acquired a stake in the Milanese restaurant Langosteria. You know, who said fashion people don't eat? As Mark Metric, who is president of Saks Fifth Avenue, where they opened the hot outpost of L'Avenue at the New York flagship, he said, you know, in the, in the past, restaurants were developed to keep customers in the store longer and spend more. Now, restaurants are really a way to attract new people to the store. And I can't help but think this all had to be tied to the rise of Instagram and social media because now, if you take a picture of yourself surrounded by this incredibly art-directed patisserie in Milan that happens to be owned by a brand like Prada or LVMH, in some way, it's a way of marketing for this brand, right? Like it just becomes part of this huge covert or not so covert marketing scheme. It's actually quite intelligent the way they've done this. 
Yeah, I would if you if you want to take a great picture at a restaurant from a from a firm, I would say go to the Prada uh, Foundation outside of in the edge, edge of Milan with the art uh, the art foundation, and have a seat at the Wes Anderson designed Prada Cafe there. It looks just like being in a Wes Anderson movie, so that's the place I would go. It's a date, Michael. All right, Michael, we really have to get to the heart of the issue here. The thing that's keeping up every left-leaning liberal awake at night, cancel culture. Alessandra Stanley's here to tell us what's actually going on and how we've all been duped. Let's take a quick break in the name of the arts. Michael, any plans for late December? Why, yes. I'll be visiting one of my very favorite spots in the East Village. Burn It Down, the holiday spectacular from Sandra Bernhardt, will be taking over Joe's Pub from December 26th through December 31st. This is a big development, Michael. We're going back to the theater for the first time since the pandemic, all in the name of some quality time with Sandy. Fact is fact, we love this woman. She's a New York icon and one of our all-time favorite performers. Burn It Down will deliver the humor we so desperately need, along with plenty of singing and a heady dose of glamour. She also promised us there'd be cocktails. Get your tickets now at publictheater.org, because this one is bound to sell out. See you there. After all, Sandy's back, and so are you. Welcome, Alessandra. <laughs> Thank you. All right, so, Alessandra, this week's column, View From Here, you've got a sort of provocative theory, but it makes a lot of sense to me, uh, the idea that maybe the woke and the woke and are kind of in the pockets of the plutocrats, right? Like, explain your thinking here. Thank you. Yes, well, no, it, it just seems a little too convenient, the, the notion that all this energy that's going into canceling professors and teachers and writers, the people who benefit from it are obviously the very wealthy, because the more we talk about, you know, woke politics and, you know, canceling people for what they're saying, we're not paying attention to the people who have all the money who aren't paying their fair share of taxes. And there's kind of no coincidence, I don't think, to the fact that suddenly we're talking about all these scandals about Toni Morrison's novel, Beloved, in schools, but Democrats have stopped talking about having a super tax for the super rich. So my theory is that this is all actually a con and it's a decoy so that, uh, you know, the people who actually are at fault in society don't have to pay the price. So how did this all happen? Because I feel like the Gen Zers that are acting as the Wokarati on Instagram, like they have no idea that they're part of a vast Republican conspiracy or a vast right-wing conspiracy. Well, it's, you know, I'm not, it's funny that you say right-wing conspiracy. I'm not even sure it is because while they are the ones who like, for example, in the Virginia election are actually, you know, spending a lot of money uh, to sort of rev up the can you know, this, the sort of culture war about cancellation because it, you know, it, it, it favors Republicans, but Democrats are also, I mean, the wealthy Democrats are also benefiting from this. You know, most of the senators are worth many millions of dollars. A majority are millionaires and more, and their income went up during COVID as much. So I don't see it so much as a just or a right-wing issue. Right wing issue. It's more of a class issue with maybe the right wing taking the lead, but also, you know, making it a great advantage for, Demo- you know, rich Democrats. You know, the kind of big donors, the Tom Steyers and uh, I, mean, I wouldn't call him a Republican, but Bloomberg, you know, they're sort of they're all benefiting from it. If we take a look at the most recent elections that we had last week, a lot of columnists and opinion and talking head types have talked about how the Democrats really 
tearing themselves apart over a lot of these issues and how, you know, Terry McAuliffe's comment about parents being out of their children's educations, like how, you know, that was so incredibly stupid because it alienated a huge swath of the population. So how do you see that all kind of playing together into this? Well, that's all part of it because he said it, he's an idiot. We knew that. But then his opponents, you know, seized on that, revved parents up and were able to sort of make him the problem, the problem with Virginia isn't the school, schools. It's, it's you know, if the problems of, of race and public schools and all those things, it's a money thing. It's not, it's not a, you know, what they're teaching. It's the fact that they're not teaching because, you know, we have pri- a private school system that basically allows the wealthiest people in the world to have a good education. And then everybody else has to go to public schools that are failing. But instead, we're talking about beloved. <laughs> yeah. Again, it's, a, it's like a great media distraction, right? And meanwhile, the rich are still getting richer. So that was my, you know, this all came about because I was at, a, at an event and there were a lot of very you know, older, very successful, very accomplished people. And they were all talking and bemoaning, you know, this professor who got there was a woman who fell asleep in a Zoom meeting and the Zoom meeting was about anti-racism. And so she was called out and they demanded, I mean, she wasn't fired, but people wanted her to be fired because she fell asleep during that meeting. So everybody's talking about these things at dinner and you're thinking, well, actually you should be encouraging this. This is good for you because they're not coming after your money right now. So that's how this logic came about. How do you see this cancel culture? I mean, it does seem like the backlash against cancel culture at this point is real and it's gaining momentum. How do you see this all playing out? Unfortunately, it's so it works so well in the interests of the very, very rich that I think there'll always be a lot of money spent stirring it up. You know, and it, I mean, this has been something there that this has been around forever, but it seems that, you know, the politics of it are just get stranger and stranger and more and more ugly. You mentioned a word uh, that uh, I think would be beneficial for readers to know about these times, about your theory. It's an Italian word. Oh, dietrologia, which is, dietro means backwards. And it's a wonderful Italian phrase that's very Italian for the theory, the, the real theory behind what is the obvious explanation. Everything has an a sort of an explanation and behind it, there's always a more sinister reason for why it happened. And so that was my uh, comparison to this. We think cancel culture is just about cancel culture, but it's actually uh, secretly, it is, it's almost like a cabal of rich people conspiring to keep it going. That is detrologia. There's always a distraction and behind the distraction, there's something else that's really going on, right? There's something more sinister behind what seems like the obvious explanation, right? yeah. Yeah. It's an Italian version of QAnon. Exactly. And meanwhile, we've created this whole class of, of Musks and Bezoses of the world who are basically uncancelable, despite what crazy things they happen to say. Um, well, yeah, you can only be canceled if you have something to lose. And the people who get canceled are people who have columns or who teach or who, you know, get movie contracts or whatever. So it's it's the low hanging fruit. But the people who have an, enough money and power, they don't have nothing to fear from cancel culture. Right. They can just stir it up to their own devices. The great distraction of 2021. Alessandra Stanley lays it out. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. Guys. On the subject of strange things happening in society and government, there is an amazing piece of reporting we have this week by Nina Burley. Back, if you remember, the plot to kidnap Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer uh, a year or so ago. Nina did a 
amazing job of reporting and getting the inside story of who the plotters were and how strange they were, how literally squirrely they were, and how the case was broken open by uh, law enforcement. I mean, once again, the truth is stranger than fiction. Yeah, as she said, you know, it's a paramilitary group operated straight out of a novel by Carl Hyacin crossed with Thomas Pynchon. And, you know, the, the details, you can't make them up. There's men training with AR-15s while smoking copious amounts of weed. A young militia member's letters to Santa were found among his notes for code words like SpaghettiOs for firearm suppressors and cupcakes for ex- improvised explosive devices. There was even one guy who had a pet squirrel because, as he said to the uh, law enforcement, he said, I have two pet squirrels. I've had them since they were babies. The tree, when it got cut down, their mom died. So he wanted to take care of them. When I was reading the story, I could only think about what Gretchen Whitmer must have thought of all of this. Like, can you imagine the notion of being kidnapped by these complete insane crazies? Well, they're insane crazies, but they were, I mean, just to remind they, they were intent on, to be believed, uh, kidnapping and, and killing her. And uh, the kind of crack in the case came when Facebook algorithm drove an actual combat experience vet to the group, a guy named Dan, whose last name is not published to protect his privacy, but he was the one who agreed to wear a wire for the FBI. And in fact, when the uh, group of militias among these guys stormed the Michigan Capitol in April of 2020, he was wearing a wire that was basically live broadcasting back to the authorities. He was a key component that, that Nina reveals here. And then there's a guy named Adam Fox, who was the true leader of the kidnapping plot. It's an amazing piece of reporting. It's horrifying. It's comic in some ways. It kind of shakes you to the core. You know what I was thinking when I read this too? Wouldn't this be a fantastic TV show? It's so tense making when you read this piece and you realize kind of how close they came. A couple of bumblers came to really executing this plot. Yeah. In the hands of the right showrunner, it could be an incredible drama. Speaking of showrunners, haha, this brings me to our next story, Michael. The makings of HBO. The makings of HBO, exactly. Take me there. Well, it's like, you know how you're watching something on HBO and you think, why is this just so much better than any other show on any other network? Well, it turns out we have some of the answers in this week's issue, thanks to a new book. It's called Tinderbox, HBO's A Ruthless Pursuit of New Frontiers by James Andrew Miller. Yeah, it's like there's kind of a formula here. It's like one value talent gives them a lot of leeway, an incredible amount of freedom and the resources they need to do their jobs. Do what the networks don't do. Sex, violence, cursing, bring it on. And that really worked for HBO. And so James Andrew Miller takes us into the backstory behind some of our favorite shows, including the drama behind the finale of Game of Thrones. Well, he answers the question, I look, I never was into Game of Thrones, but apparently there was a lot of uh, people who were not happy with how the show ended. And uh, Miller gets inside of what happened. And as Miller shows us that, you know, in 2015, when David Benioff and D.B. Weiss, the showrunners, were getting ready to wind down the series, uh, they had a meeting with Mike Lombardo, that programming head, who was hoping, you know, they were in season six and he was hoping, like, can we get to season nine and ten? And they said, yeah, actually, we're going to end it uh, at season seven and uh, we're not going to give you ten episodes, we're going to be eight. And so the show ended how and when they wanted it to. 
And maybe that was why it was so incomplete to some people, right? You got to let the writers do what they want, Michael. This is the tenet we live by. Sometimes, yeah. It's a look inside how Hollywood works, which is a little segue to another story we've got by Kelly Hayes this week about a place I'm sure you've hung out, San Vicente Bungalows. No comment. You don't want to be banned from going there? I don't want to be banned. I'm not admitting to anything, Jeff. I didn't assign this story. I didn't work on it. I have no idea what Michael is talking about. No. Kelly Hayes is a writer in Los Angeles, and she takes us inside the San Vicente bungalows. If you read the tabloids, if you read Domois, you've probably heard of it. This place used to be a rather seedy motel in West Hollywood. It was known for its clothing optional parties and some drug use. No big deal. Uh, But now Jeff Klein, who's the hotelier behind the Sunset Tower, has taken this over and turned it into a Hollywood hotspot. Photos are prohibited. Gossiping is prohibited. You are not allowed to approach members. And there's a lot of intrigue around the place because of that. And Kelly Hughes really reports on who's invited, what it's going to cost to join, how you join, how you're supposed to behave when you get in there. It's just like, you know, all the stuffy old members clubs, but with a Hollywood spin. Yeah, and they are very, um, shall we say, rigid about people who transgress against the code of conduct. People get thrown out. Someone had apparently tipped off the paparazzi that the Beavers were exiting there uh, last year, and they had an investigation. The culprit was banned. The only rule breaker still at large, so to speak, is the person who leaked word of Prince Harry's appearance at the club, right? Yeah, and funnily enough, Prince Harry's not the member. He was there meeting Wallace Annenberg. Who's a member. So it's really a kind of a, a motley crew of Hollywood types. Is that the right word? Could I say that? I think it's an assorted crew. It's, you know, you've got your Reese Witherspoons and your Bill Mars, and then you've got Emma Stone and Rosie Huntington Wheatley, right? Mm-hmm. You've got Andy Frankel, you've got J-Lo, you've got Lauren Michaels, you've got Dre Hemingway. It's everybody you want to hang out with and more, except two dubious members who are still allegedly in good standing. That would be Army Hammer and Johnny Depp. So one of the reasons Callie posits that SVB, as it's known, is so popular is because cancel culture doesn't really seem to apply here, or at least it's not excessively sensitive to it. So this is still a place where Hollywood's condescenti can see and be seen by the people they care about and not seen by the rest of the world. I guess it's a good place for people in Alessandra's piece to, to come, but at least they're all going to be taken care of by Dimitri, the maitre d'Ire. Oh, Dimitri. We have no idea who he is. He, uh, no, we, he used to be the maitre d' at the Sunset Tower and took such good care of everyone and is a legend. He is a legend far beyond Hollywood, even though he's much beloved there, but he is now working at SVB and taking care of many of the same people he he used to take care of at the Sunset Tower, which for the record is still my favorite hotel in LA. Love you, Jeff. All right, Michael, the holidays are approaching. Give me something good to talk about. Well, I don't know if there's something good to talk about, but there's something I'm excited to read based on a book. We uh, have a small excerpt from this week, which asks the question, is Jared Kushner responsible for the storming of the Capitol? Uh, and it is a book by Jonathan Carl of ABC News called Betrayal, the Final Act of the Trump Show. And it takes you inside the, the last days of the Trump election. And it sort of basically has a scene that is captivating to me. Uh, the Friday after the election, uh, the Trump 
team is gathered in a conference room at Head Campion headquarters to discuss what they could or should still do to win. There's two groups. There's one that's Jared Kushner and the campaign manager, Bill Stepien. And then there's Rudy Giuliani's team. And Rudy Giuliani's team basically is like throwing out everything that we see them throw out over the next few months. But Carl basically in this scene raises the question, you know, maybe if Jared who had all this power during the administration, had exercised some of that down the back stretch and stood up and said, no, maybe we wouldn't have January 6th looking at us. So that's a story book I'm excited to read, and I'm going to recommend it based on this excerpt. And you do. Hashtag provocative. All right, I've got much shallower matters to discuss with you, Michael. But you know how when people come to town and they want to know, oh, where should I go for a cocktail bar with great views of the city? And you always struggle to answer that question. Yes. No more. There is an incredible cocktail bar called Overstory, which is on the 64th floor of this building called 70 Pine Street. It's in the financial district. The building is this cool Art Deco spot, blah, blah, blah. There's a fancy restaurant there, blah, blah, blah. Don't go for the, I'm sure the food's fine. Don't go for the food. Go for the martinis. This roof deck is unlike anything I've ever seen. I've lived here for 17 years, ladies and gentlemen. It's unbelievable. It's, again, 64th floor. It's called Overstory, and it's just this huge roof deck with, like, very fancy craft cocktails, et cetera, et cetera. Again, cocktails are not the point. Just wander around and look at these views of the city. I was down near there recently there, and I went to Andrew Carmelini's new place, Carne Mare, which was very Oh, was it? I've been meaning to try that. His spin on an Italian chop house right there on the the new uh, South Street Seaport area. So it's nice to see another new restaurant coming online. Have you been to One Vanderbilt? I have not. Have you? I have. I went there for my birthday. Uh, It's Daniel Belude's new place, which is right by Grand Central. And it has really incredible views of Grand Central Station. Beautiful spot. On that note. On that note, we got to get out of here. We'd like to give a special thanks to our sponsor, Joe's Pub. Don't forget to check out Sandra Bernhardt's show. Burn it down. Check it out. And Michael and I will be there, and we can't wait to see you there. And on that note, Michael, will you please read us out? Morning Meeting is produced by Airplay Productions and edited by Jesse Cannon. Our co-editors are Graydon Carter and Alexander Stanley. Our chief operating officer is Bill Keenan. And our deputy editors are Nathan King and Chris Garrett. Our CMO is Emily Davis, and our music supervisor is Randall Poster. Our theme music is The Cute Monster by the Buddy Colette Quintet. A new edition of Airmail is published every Saturday, so please do subscribe and enjoy all of our stories on airmail.news, which we update every day. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at Airmail Weekly. We'll be back here next Saturday with another edition of Morning Meeting. In the meantime, be sure and subscribe at Apple Music or Spotify. But most of all, thank you for joining us.